If you do what you always do every single day, everything is going to be the same. Normal actions have normal consequences and normal results. So if you want to do anything amazing, you really got to push yourself up. And that applies to physical and mental challenges, pretty much everything. If you want to run a marathon, you better get your butt out there and run a lot of miles per day. And as far as I'm concerned, running is horrible. So that's a great way to get out of at least my personal comfort zone. Welcome to the North Star Unplugged Podcast. Brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello, and welcome back to North Star Unplugged. It's Kristen Rainey, and today I'm chatting with Carl Jensen, whom some of you know as Mr. 1500. Carl was able to retire at age 43. Today we'll learn how he made that happen. Carl, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here today. Hey, Kristen. Thank you for having me. I always cringe a little bit when people use my 1500 moniker. I sound like a second-rate James Bond villain or something like that. (laughs) Well, we are going to end the suspense in just a second, let people know how that came about. But it was so great to meet you in Mexico a few months ago. Will you share the context with listeners as to how and why you said yes to spending a few months or a few weeks or one week? How long were you there in Oaxaca? Yeah, I was there for five whole days and that's it. I wish it would have been a little bit longer, but that's all I could spare away from the family. Yeah, so how it came about is I received an email from... Alan and Katie Donegan, uh, those are two people who I met at a Chautauqua back in 2017. And if you don't know what a Chautauqua is, it's a financial independence retreat put on by J.L. Collins, who was previously on your podcast. He wrote The Simple Path to Wealth. So what it is, you go there for a week and you meet lots of cool people, see lots of cool places, and hear some cool talks by people in the financial independence community. So at that time, I met Alan and Katie. We kept in touch. They're at a place now where they help run the Chautauquas. They wanted to meet up. Everyone's been in this kind of post-COVID. I want to get the hell out of the house and and see some friends and family. So they said, we're going to be in Oaxaca if you would like to come out and spend some time with us. We'll be here from this date to this date. Show up anytime. So that's what I did. And that's how I met you. And it was so cool. It's always so fun to meet people from that community because I feel like there's a little bit of a filter. We're all very different. But we also have a lot in common if we've attended a Chautauqua or met people through the financial independence space. Yeah, well, it was really fun. I was only there, I think, five days as well. And um, I really appreciate Alan and Katie for the invite. And uh, I really enjoyed being down there and eating a lot of mole and, and meeting new people. However, my trip home was, I don't know if I told you this, but it took me like 27 hours to get back to Bozeman. I got stuck in all kinds of weather and had to spend the night in Denver and had to actually get a hotel room in Denver, which really sucked because, you know, even though I had points, it was like the equivalent of the whole amount I spent all week in Oaxaca. (laughs) So it was like a crazy trip home, but it was a really fun, fun trip. I probably could have biked home faster. (laughs) You should have looked me up. I'm not far from the Denver airport. If you ever get stuck there again, which is a frequent occurrence with friends and family, just shoot me a text or a phone call. Oh, good to know. Thank you for that. So Carl, I'd love to talk a little bit about what you were doing professionally when you were, say, 30 years old. What were you doing? Yeah, so I was a software developer. That's not what I went to school for. I actually went to school for biology and chemistry. I entered a PharmD program, which is a doctorate of pharmacy. You come out of there and usually you're a pharmacist. About halfway through the first year, I thought that being a pharmacist would be a really bad idea. I enjoyed the school, but there were lots of parts of the job that I knew I would not enjoy. And I think the job, robots can actually do the same thing pharmacists can. So I got out of that, pivoted to computers, and that is what I was doing when I was 30. And that's what I did up until the 
end of my career at about 37. Uh, no, 43. I'm sorry. 37 is when I discovered financial independence. 43 is when I stopped working. So paint us a picture of what your day-to-day was like in your, you know, this last corporate job you had. Yeah. So I was a software developer. It was for a medical device, which is pretty scary. Prior to that, I'd worked for things like point of sale systems or life insurance. And that's fine. If you screw up the code, you could charge people the wrong price for their shirt at Sears, which is where I worked, or maybe quote people the wrong price for their life insurance. If you screw things up on a medical device, there's the potential to kill people. And the thing I say about that job is I always had this dark cloud hanging over my head because it's not like I went to work, did my job, and then I went home and I was stress-free. And maybe that's the case for someone like an airplane pilot. They do their job and then the risk is done after the plane has landed. But for me, you always had this code out there. And I was always worried in the back of my mind that perhaps I screwed something up and there's some bug deep down in the code that could potentially cause some harm to another human, which would be very, very bad. Sounds very stressful. It it was. I hated it. And you reached one particularly pivotal moment where you started to kind of reassess things. Will you take us to that very important day when you had a particularly crappy day of work? Yeah. So this is back in October 2016. And I thought I actually had introduced a bug into the code. And it turns out it wasn't as bad as I, I thought it was. It was more of a testing and misunderstanding than anything else. But for the week or so it took to figure all this out. It was immense stress. I think I lost 10 pounds that week. I didn't eat much of anything. And the thought I had is if if I keep this up, it's going to kill me one way or the other. The stress is overwhelming. I was overweight at the time, high blood pressure. And yeah, it just consumed my thoughts. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweaty, worrying about my job. So it wasn't good. That's what caused me to pivot and do a Google search. I think I searched for how do I retire early where I discovered the financial independence movement. And what was your very first step after that very pivotal Google search? What happened next? Yeah. So I Googled this thing and up came a couple other bloggers. I think they were Mr. Money Mustache and J.D. Roth. And these two guys both talked about how you can retire early. I think Mr. Money Mustache had retired around the age of 31. And my first thought is this is really a, a bunch of crap. No humans retire when they're that young. What are they trying to sell here? Is the next page going to be some kind of multi-level marketing scam or something even worse? And then I started reading it a little bit more. I gave it a chance and I came upon another post of his about the 4% rule, which is, that's a big complicated thing that we don't have to go into, but it basically tells you how much money you need to save to retire. And it was at that point I realized that it was just a math problem and not much more to that. It was just numbers. So I ran down and told my wife, like, hey, I discovered this Mr. Money Mustache guy. And guess what? I can quit working early. She's like, what? Mustache? What the hell are you talking about? Like, yeah, yeah, we've been saving money all along. And if we just save a little bit more, I think I'll be able to leave my job soon. And she's like, I thought she would think I'm crazy. But she's like, well, actually, that's good. You're the one who likes math. If you figure this out, I've seen how much stress your job causes you. And I think it's wonderful if you found this way out, by all means, go for it, do it. So I'm very thankful I had a wife who was immediately on board with my crazy, spontaneous decision. So was the next step about cutting costs in your monthly budget or was it about investments? Yeah, there was a couple of things we did. Probably the main thing we did, which we had kind of planned already, but we pivoted and pushed it a little bit more was to sell our house. We were living in this pretty fancy house. It was between four and 5,000 square feet. I like to tell people that all of us had our own bathroom, four people, four bathrooms, and I was about to finish the basement. So it would have had a fifth bathroom. Talk about first world luxury, 1.25 toilets per person. No one would ever have to wait in line. We had already known we didn't like the house, but we weren't sure where we were going to go. After that, we decided to buy a much smaller house, much cheaper house. I think that house was about, I'm very open with numbers, by the way, so I'll tell you these outright. That house we sold for a little bit over 400000 And we ended up buying a two-bedroom, one-bathroom house that had been a rental. It was infested with uh, ants and rodents. And we bought that. It was a foreclosure for 176000 We would eventually go on to fix that house up. But that was the main thing we did. The other thing we did was start keeping track of our money and where it went to. And that was a real eye-opener because... I thought, hey, we're probably spending 40000 a year. And it turned out 
once I started keeping track of it, it was actually a lot more than that. You know, it was slightly terrifying. So it sounds like, you know, downsizing to a much smaller roach-infested house was the first step. At what point did you start investing or were you already investing at that point? The good thing is we were already investing. I had always had money and security issues, but I want to put this as gentle as possible. My parents weren't great with money and it wasn't any fault of their own. It's just lack of education. I think that's one of the things missing in the United States. If your if your parents don't teach you about money and if your school doesn't teach you about money, how are you ever going to learn unless you very intentionally seek the information out? So I find most humans don't really know how to save and budget, that they don't know the nuts and bolts of it, and they don't know how to invest. And I kind of saw this as a kid. I saw my parents struggled with it. So I told myself way back then, I'm going to, the first thing I said is I'm going to get a good paying job. I never want to have to struggle in any of the ways they did. I want job security. My dad would often be out of work. The second thing is after I got that job, I wanted to save and invest. So by the time I had that bad day at work, we already had like 580000 saved up and $150,000 in home equity. So we were already on our way to financial independence. I just didn't know it before I found Mr. Money Mustache. And where does the 1,500 days come from? I did some spontaneous calculations that day. And the number I came up with was that we would need $1 million and no debt for me to leave my job. And with about a 10% return and saving pretty aggressively, it would take me about 1,500 days. Plus, all the other cool uh, URLs, domain names were taken. I think I made a list of about 100. You, you know how that is. So then you end up with some ridiculous name. And that was the one I was able to find. And did you hit financial independence in 1,500 days? It actually happened about a year earlier than that through luck. The stock market was very healthy and the stock market did very well. And the investments we had did very well as well. So we got lucky and hit our hit our number about a year ahead of time. What was your boss's reaction when you told him or her that you were retiring? Uh, well, they were surprised and they had all kinds of questions. I found out that they had already kind of known about it. I kept my blog anonymous, but there was a story that was written about us that happened to have our picture on it that went public. And my boss had found out about it. He just hadn't told me that he had found out about it. Uh, So I had two bosses. The other one was a female. So they both knew about it, but they were both too shy to ask me about it. I think that's a big issue with America. And I don't know if it's like this in any other countries, but Money is such a taboo subject, right? It's like, what are the three things we don't talk about? Like sex, God, and and money. And I I think it's kind of ridiculous. Out out of those three, I would much rather talk about money. And it kind of hurts us too. If if we were all open about it and receptive to listening to other people, I think we'd be a lot better off with it. I'll tell you a real quick, funny story. When I was growing up, I wanted to know how much my dad made. So I went down and asked my mom, I'm like, hey, I'm just curious, how much does dad make in his union electrician job? And my mom's like, that is none of your business. I I don't want you to ever ask me about that again. I'm like, okay, uh, I had really touched the hot button there, right? And then a couple months later, she's telling me, oh, Carl, we need to talk about something. And I realized she was going to have the sex talk. So I'm like, no, mom, some kid on the playground told me all about it. (laughs) I swear I know what to do. I'll I'll be careful and all that. So we do not need to talk any further about this. So it was, it greatly amused me that she was willing to talk about sex, but not about money. I'm I'm the exact opposite with my own children. I I don't want to touch sex. I've got girls. So my wife has taken on most of that. Thankfully, everyone was a little bit more comfortable with that. But we do talk about money a lot in our household as well. And certainly you're very transparent on your website, 1500 Days. It's really amazing to be able to see all of your investments and how they've changed over time. At what point did you decide to be transparent about your investments? Yeah, I kind of wanted to do that from the start. And it's turned into something I don't want because I did pretty well and people take it as bragging now, although I just try to present the numbers and not put any emotion behind it. But the main reason I wanted to do it was for what I said a moment ago. I wish we were all a little bit more transparent. That way we'd feel more comfortable asking people questions about money and we could all help each other out. 
one thing that drives me nuts is there's always these magazines in America, like you read Forbes about the 10 richest people or the 10 billionaires under 30. So we, we put money on this huge pedestal and we, we worship these people. And I think it's bad. We should worship people because they're doing good for other humans like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates are doing awesome things. And so is Mark Zuckerberg. They've pledged to give 95% of their wealth to good causes upon their death or before. But we don't hear about much of that. Instead, we read about their net worth on the covers of magazines. And I wish I could turn that story around. So my transparency was to try to be open with money so we can get past that and talk about other things that should matter more, like how to live a happier, more intentional life. Well, what do you hope to be remembered for when you're gone? Oh. <laughs> wow, the, the, the easy questions right from the, right the get go. I don't really care that people remember me for anything. After we die, we're going to be dead. No one's going to remember us in 100 years. But what I do hope is that the world is a little bit better because I lived. I hope some people read the blog and decide to become maybe frugal and live a more satisfying life. And then there's secondary effects. Maybe their friends see that and they help other people. So if I could just change a couple of lives for the better, that would make me really happy. Once in a while, I'll get an email from someone saying, hey, I found your blog and I changed my life. I did this and this and this, and now everything is completely different. And a couple of years later, we're so much happier for it. I don't get that that often, maybe once or twice a year, but but when you do it, that's <laughs> that's probably one of the highlights of the year for me, actually. It's so good to know that you've made a little bit of difference in someone's life just from typing some silly words onto a silly blog. That's awesome. Did you end up inspiring any of your former coworkers to invest and or to strive for financial independence? Uh, no, actually, I don't think I inspired any of them. I don't know if they do. They haven't told me. There was some of them had questions about it. Most of the questions were about the me mechanics of investing, which is great, too, because if you can figure that out, that's the knowledge you need to be good with money. But I don't know. I'm trying to think. Uh, even my family, it's uncomfortable. And I, I try to tell them sometimes you see them making silly decisions. And the worst thing you can do to someone is to try to preach to them because no one wants to hear that. They don't want to hear that at all. Often it just makes them pivot in the other direction, I find. So what I find is there's that old saying when the, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And that's what you have to be if you might be able to find an opening where someone says, oh, I've struggled with this and this and this. What do you think about this? Or, or my mortgage is X amount. Can you help me with that? And then you might have a, a little bit of opening. But by far, the best thing is to lead by example. And the people who are ready to hear the message and to accept it will embrace it and run with it. Has there ever been a moment since reaching financial independence where you've debated returning to utilizing some of your prior skills, like in coding, for example, but not in a stressful environment, one different and maybe one where you felt like you were having an impact in a different way? Yeah, there was one point where I actually did wish I was back at work, and that was when COVID was raging. Yeah, I, I never really wanted to be a, and I, I would have never gone back to work, so I need to explain it a little bit. But uh, I never wanted to be a homeschool teacher. And I'm, I'm kind of an introvert. And my younger daughter is very, very much an extrovert. So we butted heads a little bit. And it was all my fault. It was my failure to understand and comprehend her personality. So I remember a couple of times thinking my work would be so much more pleasant than this. But again, it was my own fault not being able to understand her, not being able to relate to her. And the thing was, she absolutely craves human contact. She loves to be around other humans. So the school would give us these assignments like, okay, do this Khan Academy videos, like one through four on this and this, and then uh, fill out this worksheet. And her immediate reaction was, I don't want to watch that. I'm like, well, you haven't even watched any of these yet. Why are you being so negative towards this? And the Khan Academy is fine with me. I think it's well done. But anyway, what I came to realize is she just wanted the human interaction. She did not want some face on the computer telling her about math or English or whatever the subject was. She wanted another person to do that. And until I understood that and until I really understood where she was coming from, it was difficult. But I'm thankful for it because I learned something from it. It seems like COVID has definitely been a really interesting and challenging time for all kinds of different reasons. And it's interesting just exploring the introversion, extroversion issue, because I would have thought for me as an introvert that 
lockdown or general circumstances during COVID would be a lot easier. And actually, I found that maybe I'm less introverted than I had thought. But yeah, it was a challenging time for sure. Yeah. How did you, may I ask you a question? Or? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I struggled with the same thing. What you said is exactly what I thought too. Maybe I'm not quite as introverted as I thought I was. How did you deal with that when we think we need other humans around? Even for me, it's just not necessarily even talking to people, just being around other people, like at this co-working space I work out of. Just just that, knowing there's other people around that if you want to say, hey, how's the weather or something like that, you can have a little bit of interaction. How did you personally get through that and, and deal with it? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think one thing that was really helpful was I I was actually going to a HIT class, a high intensity interval training class, you know, a lot of burpees and push-ups and stuff. And it was kind of crazy that it was open. They were very careful about, you know, everyone wore masks as they came in and they only let, I don't know, 30% of the number of students in and they had very specific tape on the floor. So you had to go to a specific place. And I wouldn't say it was riskless. It was probably the riskiest thing I did during COVID. However, the benefit of just frankly being around other human beings and having the workout kick my butt also helped. But even just, you know, some silly chit chat before and after class, that might have been the only social interaction of the entire day. <laughs> uh, and so I think that was really helpful. So that was one thing I did. I don't know. I watched a lot of Netflix, to be honest. I don't think it was like the healthiest time, to be honest. <laughs> it was not the healthy time. I tried to abstain from alcohol most of my days, but <laughs> that was a high point of my alcohol consumption, which wasn't good either. Oh, I think you're not alone. I think it was a general spike, at least across this country. I think there was way more than normal. Well, I'd love to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about your investing approach. Your biggest holding, I know from your website, is Tesla, followed by Facebook, Amazon, and Google. And I really, to be honest, Carl, I wish you had an additional column on your spreadsheet showing percent gain, because it would have been so interesting, for example, to see, you know, I know you bought Google at its IPO. Have you ever debated having an additional column on there, or is it just too much because there's just, you know, only so much space? Yeah, I should do that. I was thinking about that today because those numbers don't mean much of anything without that context. But yeah, I think there's 200 baggers in my portfolio, which means they're worth 100 times what I bought them at. There might be a third. I know Google and Tesla are definitely that. And I think Amazon is too. We bought Amazon a long time ago. With that said, I don't recommend buying technology stocks. I also own funds. My second biggest holding is actually VTSAX, which is the home market index fund by Vanguard. My stocks, I bought those before I knew what index funds were. I knew that a lot of funds were bad because they had high fees. I was obsessed with technology. So I tell people I just got lucky. I, I really like tech that combined with my stubborn personality, which isn't a good thing, except in this case where you're resistant to change your portfolio made me get pretty lucky with those stocks. But I don't recommend this for most people for a lot of different reasons, actually. Well, did I read correctly that your investment portfolio is now showing that your investments in index funds, not exclusively VTSAX, but many others in total, surpass now your investment in individual stocks? Is that correct? Uh, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's probably pretty close. We just sold the property we had and we put all the money into VTSAX or almost all of it. So after that, it's probably pretty much even. We still have some real estate holdings as well. But yeah, stocks are sexy and they can be very interesting. Like a hundred bagger is a pretty cool thing to have, but it's also an extremely difficult thing. The reasons I bought those hundred bagger stocks were not good reasons and I just got lucky. Who knew Google would be what it is today when it IPO'd in August of 2004? Or Tesla, they've almost gone bankrupt twice since I bought the stock. And I don't think I even knew that. But if you would have bought that stock and knew what was going on, you might have freaked out and sold it, which would have been a horrible mistake. And by 2030, it still might be a horrible mistake. Maybe Tesla will be irrelevant for reasons we can't even predict right now. And that's why stocks are hard. Do you anticipate there might be a time in the future where you might be entirely in index funds and real estate and not in individual stocks at all? We don't really buy individual stocks anymore. But the thing is to sell them off, we'd be hit with pretty high capital gains. My wife still does have a job. So if she were to stop working, I would sell off stocks. We've sold off some of our Facebook. I used to have 2,000 shares of that. Now it's down to 1,450, I think. We did that to invest in something else, actually. So I don't know if they continue to do well. I mean, the good problem I have is I, it would take a long time to 
sell them off. So I don't know. What I will say is all new money goes to index funds or 99% of it does. Some of it still goes to real estate, but mostly not. But I don't anticipate buying a single share of a stock. If someone asked me for a good stock idea right now, I'd probably say don't buy any stocks and just buy the index fund. I'd love to talk a little bit about real estate. I know you've flipped homes in the past. Can you share a little more about your process or your approach of you know, identifying what to buy, doing the work on the house, and then selling? Yeah. So what we do is a live and flip, and I'll tell people what that is. I'll tell you what that is and why it's good. So a live and flip is a house that you remodel, but you live in it at the same time. <laughs> so you can tell what the bad part of that is. You're living in a construction zone and at times that can be filled with misery and lots of bad words and and ba- some bad situations. It's great when you just have just done all the laundry and then there's a layer of drywall dust on it. <laughs> but but what it gets you is if you own the home for two of the past five years and you've lived in it for two of the past five years, there are zero capital gains for a single that is up to two hundred and fifty thousand. For a married couple, it is up to five hundred thousand. So, excuse me, some of these houses we've made over a hundred thousand on. And all that money goes right into your pocket, not a not a cent goes to taxes. So that's what a live and flip is. How do I identify them is much more difficult. You have to have your niche. We usually look for houses maybe 30 or 40 years old. The one I'm sitting in right now is built in 1979, so it's 42 years old. The reason we look at houses like that is because they're usually structurally pretty sound. They have modern mechanicals, but they have outdated fixtures like this one had pink bathtubs and it had a blue toilet and all this ugly carpet everywhere. It had been smoked in. But those are all things I know how to take care of, including the cigarette smoke. Hint, an $80 ozone machine from Amazon can take care of that. So that's what we look for in a house. We also look for things in the neighborhood. We look for neighborhoods that people are putting money into. And you hear people talk about, look for cranes in a city because that's how you know there's lots of building and development going on in a city. I'm usually not in a big city. So what I look for are dumpsters. If if there's dumpsters all over in people's driveway, my ears perk up because I know that's people remodeling their houses. And I like these old neighborhoods like the one I'm living in now because there's lots of original owners still living here, but they're moving out quickly because they're old. And you see young families with money coming in here and, and putting money into it. So I look at the neighborhood itself. And then I look at the city or town I'm buying in. I like to see a town that's not perfect. And I'm in Boulder County here, and, and Boulder is pretty perfect and shiny and nice. There's not scrappy parts left. Where Longmont still has, I think, more potential as a whole for real estate appreciation. And then you look for things like jobs, industry. Are there people moving here? So Colorado is very popular, as is Montana, where you're at. So you see a net influx of people, which can only be a good thing as far as bad for traffic, but pretty good for real estate prices. How did you tackle the pink bathtub? (laughs) There's a couple of ways you can tackle them. And I still haven't done anything with this one yet. That's a future project. But if they're not too heavy, I've taken a, or if they're big and heavy, I've taken a pickaxe to them, but you can also get really good epoxy paint to cover them up with now. So if I want to turn it into like a walk-in shower, I'll destroy the whole thing with the axe, with the pickaxe. If I want to keep it, I will paint it with the epoxy paint. And this one I think is going to stay because we have another bathroom we can turn into a walk-in shower. So this bathtub will get a new color, but it will get a reprieve on life. How many of these live and flip situations have you done so far? I think this is number eight. And the one we're in now was kind of unintentional. After we did the last one, we didn't want to do another one, but for reasons including us getting a really, really good deal on this one, it was too good to pass up, so we moved into it. And it's been a challenge, too, because I was in the middle of all these projects, and then COVID hits, and oh, look, I'm not going to, I got to put all my tools down and pick up the textbooks and learn how to do quadratic equations again and, and all that stuff. So it was a little bit taxing out of all the things that I thought could disrupt a live and flip or life in general. I did not expect it to be a pandemic, but there you have it. But the great thing is financial independence allowed me to to pivot and do those things and take care of what needed to be done at the time. And the last situation before this one, you ended up holding on to, correct, and renting it out instead of selling it. Is that true? We did. We eventually, we did sell it. Actually, we sold it earlier this year. 
we were going to hold on to it and turn it into an Airbnb. Airbnbs do pretty well. But the city became a little bit more restrictive on their Airbnb requirements and licenses. And I think it would have taken up more time than I initially planned. We did have it as a long-term rental for about six months, but the numbers just did not work. Uh, the real estate is not passive. You've got this house, people are living in it, but they're still going to call you. Even the best tenants are going to have an issue and they're going to call you and it's totally within their right. That's why they rent because they don't want to have to fix a wayward stove or the sprinkler system when it goes crazy or the, the funny smell emanating from the crawl space, all of which happened, by the way. Do you anticipate you'll continue flipping homes or are you done? I don't think so. We have enough at this point. We don't really need more money. With that said, I do like to buy houses that need a little bit of work. I enjoy the process. It's kind of neat to take an ugly house and make it your own. And if you're going to get a bit of a discount on it too, that's great too. The thing about Colorado is labor is so expensive. Like People here will pay, I think, to finish my basement. If I had paid someone to do that, it would have cost probably between sixty dollars and $75,000. I'm thinking off the top of my head. And so far, I've got like 13000 into it, and I'm just about done with it. And now that's a lot of time. No one should do this if they don't actually enjoy the work. If you hate swinging a hammer or uh, wielding the air gun, don't do that kind of work. But for me, I enjoy it. But no, I'll probably never do a big live and flip again like this one, just minor repairs, swapping out the pink toilets or blue bathtubs. I know you've done quite frequent refinancing of your homes of the moment. What's your estimate on how much over the years that that's saved you? Any idea? That's a great question. I'm not sure. We did do something interesting with this house. We actually paid cash for it. We knew the people, it had sat on the market for a long time, and uh, we knew that the sellers were probably eager to get rid of it. So we said, hey, we can give you cash for it. So what we did is we paid cash for it, and then we eventually did a cash out refinance. And then we immediately invested the money. And we got very fortunate with the timing for that because we did that last April. So we didn't catch the COVID bottom. I think the market, I forgot how much it was down, but we weren't that far away from it. So I was looking at my spreadsheet, and I can pull up exact numbers if you'd like, but I think we've paid about 11000 in interest, and the money we've invested is it's up over $100,000. So depending on how you frame that, I do like to leverage debt because interest rates are so low now. I'm pretty sure I can do better than 3% over the long term. So if I can get a mortgage at 3%, I'd much rather invest the money and have the 9 or 10% that the stock market has returned with dividend reinvestment over the very long term. And I know you and your wife, Mindy, have also invested in other real estate projects, including Mr. Money Mustache's co-working space. Can you tell us a little more about that space and what got you excited to be a partner? Yeah. So, so Pete and Mr. Money Mustache own that space with his wife and another partner. His wife and his wife's partner were running a retail store out of it and a makerspace. They would make Pete's wife made ex-wife made soap and her partner made ceramic pottery. And the retail space wasn't working out for them. They decided they wanted out. At that time, Pete decided he wanted to buy them out and and expand the co-working space. So I think he put something on Twitter that I happen to read. He said, yeah, I'm looking to expand my space. This should be good, all the bigger co-working space. I just need to buy my ex-wife and her partner out. So at that time, I, I sent him a note. I'm like, hey, if you're interested in, in taking out a partner, I'd love to do that with you. And he responded. He's like, sure, let's do it. So it's actually Pete, myself, and a third person who is uh, the third partner lives in Maine. So yeah, I wanted to own it because it's a fun business to own. It gets my introverted butt out of the house. And we also own property on Main Street Longmont, which I think will do well over the long term. Sounds like a very cool co-working space with beer on tap and an outdoor gym. And it looked really cool. Yeah, it, it is a lot of fun. We actually had a big party this past weekend. It was kind of our first big post-COVID shindig. So we had about 70 or 80 people there at yeah, it's nice. It's got this great big outdoor space and we can have music. There's no residences around it to disturb. And yeah, it's, it's just been a lot of fun. The greatest part about it is there's so many interesting people that work there and also that pass through town that might join it to work there for three months while they live in their van or whatever that they're doing. And then at our events, we always have 
interesting people come through. This last event we had was actually run by someone who has a, I think it's a Facebook financial independence group. No, a Zoom group. I never knew this was a thing, but so we had 17 people come from out of town. Like people were there from Virginia and New York and it's neat. It's, it's fun to meet all the different characters that come through. It's awesome. And in addition to all that, in addition to your blog, I know you also recently started an awesome podcast with your co-host, Doug, called Mile High Fi. Can you explain to listeners uh, Mile High Fi? Yeah, I had known Doug. Doug's been doing podcasts and online work for a while, and he had interviewed me on a couple of his podcasts. So earlier this year, I think it was, he said, yeah, if you're ever interested in doing a podcast, I think we have good rapport we should get together and and do something if that has any interest for you. And I did it, but it's probably the weirdest reason that anyone could think of. I did it because, like to back up a second, as a kid, I had speech impediments. I stuttered. I couldn't. It was weird because these words would appear in my mind and then I couldn't get them to come out of my mouth. There's no other way to explain it than that. And it probably sounds like insanity for someone who hasn't had these issues. So I, I had a bunch of therapy and and uh, went through a bunch of stuff. And now, now I'm a pretty good speaker. Or I don't have much of these issues anymore. But it, it made me a, a deep introvert. Kids will make fun of you. And and I don't think I was ever a really good, just smooth speaker to begin with. So the main reason I wanted to do the podcast was just to improve my speech skills. I, I think once you volunteer to public speak and once you know how to speak well, you're just a more confident, well-adjusted person. But a side note, I volunteered to public speak, which was deeply, deeply, deeply terrifying, much more than most did. Now I've done it probably 15 or 20 times in the past couple of years. And it's probably the best thing I've done for personal growth because my confidence is way higher. I think I'm a better person for it. So that's what I hope to get out of the podcast to talk a little bit slower and not mumble as much as I, as I used to. Well, you sound very smooth to me. I've enjoyed the episode so far. And if any listeners want to check it out, the website is milehighfi, F-I, as in financial independence. And Mile High, I'm assuming, is referring to Colorado, although Longmont, isn't Longmont 4984? So is it about Longmont or is it is it something else? Um, it's about a bunch of different things. We have a lot of fun on the podcast, so we joke around a lot. So it's kind of a double entendre, join the Mile Hi-Fi Club, join the Mile High Club of people doing things they shouldn't be doing on planes, which neither Doug or I have ever done before. But yeah, that's probably the main reason for the name, just to be a little bit goofy. But you, you are correct. Longmont is not a mile high. So if you want to take into that direction, we're rounding up. We're being generous with the altitude of Longmont. Nice. Well, I know you mentioned in one of your recent episodes that it's only recently that you've started to pay attention to sleep. Was there a particular tipping point for you when you started to think about your sleep? Yeah, I think there were a couple different things. I, I noticed when my older child, she's 14 now, but when she was six or seven, the difference in her personality between getting a really good night's sleep and a really bad one was like night and day. I, I'm going to throw a reference that'll that'll severely date me, but there was this movie called Gremlins. Do you remember that movie as a kid? Oh, Yeah. Like, don't feed them after midnight. So my joke with her is she was the cute, like, the, the cute, nice gremlin if she had enough sleep. And then if she didn't have enough sleep, she would turn to evil one, which was green and had claws and red eyes and all that. Yeah, she would say the craziest things and just become this crazy person just because of lack of sleep. And I started thinking, I wonder how I am. There, There's a famous Richard Feynman quote I like, which is like the number one rule is not to be fooled and the easiest person to fool is yourself because we get stuck in our own tunnel vision and we don't realize how these things affect us. So I kind of took a step back and started paying attention to myself after I didn't get a good night's sleep. And I realized, yeah, I'm kind of a crappy person. I'm ornery. I don't remember things as well. And I'm just not the person I should be if I don't get enough sleep. This is, I should probably start paying attention to this. And then I I started reading about it a little bit more. And I think these studies are pretty early, but some people think lack, lack of sleep can lead to things like Alzheimer's because you're, you're not giving your brain a chance to clean itself. Your brain has a, a drainage system, and I can't remember what it's called, that works when you sleep. And even if that's not true, scientists are pretty sure that sleep is when your brain commits long-term memory. So there's so many reasons to get a good night's sleep that I started paying attention to it. 
And then I started paying attention to the things that get me a bad night's sleep. And the number one thing is is alcohol. If I if I drink it, it has any effect on me when I go to sleep. If I still have a little bit of a buzz, my sleep is just completely ruined. I wake up sweaty. I can't go back to sleep, and it's just miserable. So yeah, seeing my daughter was the start of the journey, but now I pay a lot more attention to it and take it a lot more seriously. Yeah, I find my workouts aren't as good. That yeah, everything changes with a bad night's sleep. It's really incredible and really it's probably the number one thing undervalued. And it's pretty amusing, right? Because we used to read these things like uh people would brag about how they can work on such little sleep. <laughs> you really shouldn't be bragging about that. You should be bragging about your great night's sleep, not that you can do your job on four hours sleep or what, whatever it is. So in, in addition to being mindful about alcohol, is there anything else that you've done in terms of changing any of your day-to-day behaviors or buying any gadgets of any sort that are helping you with your sleep? Yeah, there, there's a couple of practices and one gadget. So one practice is just to settle down my mind before bed. Whenever my favorite old thing I used to do would be to think about something when I'd be going to sleep or attempting to go to sleep. And what I realized is if I'm thinking about something, my brain isn't going to let me go to sleep because it wants to continue thinking about whatever I'm thinking about. And it wasn't necessarily bad. It was just my brain was still spinning and I couldn't go to bed. So I think uh, like meditation helps out in that. It teaches you how to calm your mind down a little bit. But the other thing I did was sleep temperature. I Even if I'm not drinking, I sleep very warm. So I bought this thing called the chili pad, which is this little pad that's got a separate machine that pumps cold water to it at night. You can set the temperature. And that thing was a game changer for me because I was sleeping horrible. I'd wake up at two or three in the morning covered in sweat and I couldn't fall back to sleep because I was so warm. And and that thing, it was expensive. I remember struggling to pay the $500 for it, but probably the best $500 I ever spent because sleep is priceless. I'm a big fan of Chili Pad as well. We actually had the CEO on the podcast many months ago, and uh, I have the Uller version, which I can control by my phone. And uh, I'm a big fan of it so far, especially since it's been you know sweltering 90s every single day this past six weeks here in Montana. Yeah, going to bed in heat is terrible. I, I'd rather go without food than go without air, air conditioning or have to live in a hot environment. <laughs> Have you noticed, you know, with when you're getting a, a good night's sleep versus a poor night's sleep that it, you know, going back to your public speaking, that it makes a difference in how smooth your delivery or your thought process? You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually gave a talk on Saturday at this thing we held at the co-working space. And it does because I could remember my points very clearly and my mind can pivot. Like sometimes if I'm really on the ball and have a good night's sleep, I, I could stop for a second. And the idea that I needed to remember the thing I was going to speak to will pop into my head. And if I don't have enough sleep, it doesn't work that way. I'll have to look at my notes and it's much clunkier. So I, if I'm going to do something big like that, or if I'm really trying to do something important in my life that takes mental, that, that I need all my brain for, I really try to, to get sleep. I notice it with trying to learn Spanish as well. If I've got a good night's sleep, the words stay and stick to my brain much easier than they would otherwise. And it's kind of fun. Sometimes what I realized lately is you don't necessarily realize these effects unless you're doing something that's maybe close to your edge of your limits or really challenging. So if you're just, I don't know what a good example would be, but trying to learn languages is hard. You're trying to learn the structure. You're trying to memorize all these words and it's, it's a lot of work. So you definitely realize if your brain isn't working as well as it is when you're trying to do something like that. So all that aside, just getting enough sleep is so important for all those other reasons. You've said that retiring early didn't necessarily make you any happier. What's your perspective on that now this many years later? Do you think that you're happier now than you were when you were at your corporate job? Do you think you're happier now than you were when you first retired? Yeah, I'm definitely happier now, but it's not like a switch flipped. What I thought would happen is I thought I would leave my job and then boom, There'd be rainbows, unicorns, uh, beer would be raining from the sky and everything would be wonderful. And then I quit my job and, and life was better in a lot of ways. My time was freed up, but my level of happiness was pretty much exactly where it was when I had my stressful job. And that was pretty surprising and eye-opening. So that led me down a whole other path of uh, investigation and introspection. Have you come to any massive conclusions or or insights about it? Yeah. So what I realized, I did some research and there's two people who came to mind who wrote papers. One was 
Dan Gilbert, who's uh, I think is a professor at Harvard, and he did a study about people who have really good things happen to them and really bad things. So he was talking about lottery winners and amputees. And what he came to is after a week or two, the lottery winner is much happier than he was before he or she was before he won the lottery. And the amputee is very unhappy. But then after a year, they're pretty much at the same point as to where they were before. And that's pretty amazing. I thought you would have thought that each of those events would have resulted in more long-term happiness or unhappiness, respectively. So after I read that, I, I did some more research and I read something. I think her name is Sandra. Her last name is very long. It starts with an L, but she's a, I think a psychology professor at Stanford. And she talked about where our happiness comes from. And this was pretty interesting because what she says is half of it comes from our genetics. So there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. We're born happy people or, or we're born a pessimist and unhappy, which is kind of how I think I am. 10% is from circumstances. So that's your shelter, your food, and just basically your what's going on in your life. So, so you can control that somewhat, but it's not that big of a influence on your happiness. It's only 10%. And the other 40ness was intentional activity in our life. And that's what I realized I needed to work on. Like, what am I doing on a day-to-day basis? Why am I not happy with the way my life is right now? What do I need to work on? It sounds like a pretty interesting paper. We'll, we'll include that in the show notes if we can find it. Do you have any book recommendations for listeners? I have three book recommendations and a blog post recommendation. One of the earliest books that changed my life was called The Millionaire Next Door. And the reason that changed my life is I had this vision in my head. I I was an ignorant kid. I I thought I had an idea of what the average millionaire in the United States looked like. And what this book did was, was interview actual millionaires and then state what their habits were. So I think the average millionaire derived either a Ford F-150 pickup truck or a Toyota Camry. They live in ranch houses in boring suburbs. They're not people with top hats who have a monocle that fly around in a helicopter and drive Ferraris or not the people you see on TV. They're just, they look average. They look like everyone else. They just happen to have money. So that was eye-opening after I read that. I'm like, well, I'll bet this family member and this family member and this family are, are millionaires. This is so interesting. The second one is uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac. And that's a book about Charlie Munger, who is the investing partner of Warren Buffett. Charlie Munger is a very interesting character. And, and what's cool about this book isn't the investing money part. There is some of that in there. But he goes into a big talk and part of the book about different mental models. And I think mental models are just fascinating. If you understand certain mental models, they'll help you improve your life. And I think he's got his 20 most important ones in there. And that part is just fascinating. Read that and you'll understand how to become a a better person. But there's lots of stuff in the book about how to make money and how Charlie Munger thinks about investing too. But it's good even if you aren't into that. The third book I've really liked in my life is Catcher in the Rye. And the reason for that is I think I just resonated with the main character. He was kind of an oddball who didn't fit in. And I I felt like that for, for a lot of my life. Why am I not the popular person? But that book kind of, I guess, gave me permission to be a different. It said it's okay to be a little bit different. I, you should just have confidence in who you are. And that builds up to probably what is the most important thing I've ever read. And that's a blog post on a, a blog called Wait But Why. And the blog post is called Why You Should Stop Caring About What Other People Think. So there's one great line in there, and I should have wrote it down before the interview, but I, I think it goes something like this. Most human beings have an abnormal and unhealthy obsession with what we think other human beings think of us. Yeah, I think that's probably an almost verbatim. That means we care so much about what other people think. It changes the, the way we act. It changes what we air, what we wear. It changes what we buy, what parties we go to. And it's completely ridiculous. So the point of this post is everyone's goal should be to be their own true authentic self. Those kind of people are the people who change the world. Those kind of people resonate with with other people. People love to see a strong leader type person. I think that's why the Mr. Money Mustache blog has worked so well. He speaks in this strong authoritarian voice. And I've realized how important that is. And I, I try to <laughs> tell us on my kids too. And it's a lot harder for, for them to embrace these things because everyone wants to fit in. And if you if you're a little bit strange, you're worried about being ostracized by your peer group, but it's so important to be authentic to who you are and, and just be who you are. And 
I kind of realized that with my blog, actually, I tried to, at first I tried to write how I thought other people would receive me well. And I thought that's ridiculous. You should just be your own juvenile, silly self. If you want to tell a fart joke on your blog, if that's what makes you happy, you should do it because there's billions of people in the world who have access to the internet. And some people are going to like that. Most probably won't, but you'll resonate with the people who it should resonate with. And that's who you want to connect with. You want to connect with people who appreciate you for who you are and not for who you pretend to be. I love it. We'll certainly include those book titles as well as that awesome blog post in the show notes and listeners can find that at northstarsleepschool.com forward slash podcast. Carl, my last question today is, is there anything you are excited about for this upcoming year? <laughs> is that just through the end of this calendar year or through the, the next 365 days? It could be the next 365 days. Okay. So I think one thing that every human should do is try to push themselves, push her or himself outside of their comfort zone. We started out talking with, about Ellen and Katie Donegan. And one thing Ellen always says is, is life happens outside your comfort zone. All your growth happens there. If you do what you always do every single day, everything is going to be the same. Normal actions have normal consequences and normal results. So if you want to do anything amazing, you really got to push yourself out. And that applies to physical and mental challenges, pretty much everything. If you want to run a marathon, you better get your butt out there and run a lot of miles per day. And as far as I'm concerned, running is horrible. So that's a great way to get out of at least my personal comfort zone. If you want to learn a language or learn advanced math, you're going to have to study hard. That's uncomfortable too. So my challenge for the past couple of years has been public speaking. And I get a little nervous just saying this, but I, I volunteered to speak at this conference called Economy. That's M-E, not M-Y, Economy. And there's going to be like 700 people there watching it. So it'll be by far the biggest group I've ever spoken to and a great challenge. So I'm super terrified and super excited about it all, all at the same time. And that'll happen in November. So if you're in Cincinnati and want to see me either uh, make a fool out of myself or do something good or somewhere in between, uh, come to Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah. So yeah, it's probably what I'm most excited about this year or anxious about, depending on how you put it. You're going to do great. Well, Carl, thanks so much. It's been really fun to have you on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kristen, for having me. This was a ton of fun. I really appreciate you having me. And listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, there's several ways to support the podcast, all of which are free. You can subscribe. You can share this episode with a friend. Uh, you can check out nearly 60 prior episodes. You can leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And you can also get updates about the podcast on the e-newsletter, which you can sign up for at northstarsleepschool.com. Take care, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.